and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Last, last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. Let us <clears throat> pray together again. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you again for your precious book. We ask, O oh, our God, our gracious Father, make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Shine upon us this evening. Give us strength where there is none that Jesus Christ in all things would be glorified. Now help us now. Help us now to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The church at Corinth was a church plagued with problems. I shouldn't be surprising. Hope is not shocking what I'm about to say. All churches are plagued with problems. Some more than others. But problems nonetheless. The Corinthian church were those who were called and sanctified in Christ Jesus, richly furnished with all the blessings that are found in him as they await his return from heaven. The Apostle Paul urged them to be unified. Why would he have to do something like that? He urged them to be unified and to put away strife from among themselves. You, you mean people who call on the name of Jesus Christ would strive, would bicker, would be contentious? In the words of my uncle, you bet your bottom dollar. They were divided up into different cliques within the church, small churches within the church. One would say, I belong to Apollos. I belong to Peter. I belong to Paul. And the real religious ones would say, I belong to Christ. They had gotten to the point where they have put preachers on par with Jesus. We need to be careful making idols of preachers. I'm not saying can't like a preacher. That's not what I'm saying. 
But when we get to a point where preachers are idols, sometimes God just removes the preacher. We should never get to that point. We should not get to the point not only where preachers are not idols, but we should not get to the point where denominations become idols. People don't enter God's kingdom because they belong to a particular denomination. We don't enter because of denomination. We enter through regeneration. That's how we get into the kingdom. Not whether we are Presbyterian, Baptists, or everything that falls in between. The beauty of heaven is that there will be no denominational distinctions. There will be no doctrinal differences. Hallelujah for that. Paul goes further in urging them that at the heart of the church should be Jesus Christ, our holy Christology, Jesus Christ, his person and his cross work. It were to look past ministers to the one to whom the whole reproductive system of Christian growth depended on. That's on Jesus Christ himself. They were puffed up and impatient and had become critical of their father in the faith, the Apostle Paul. Can that happen? Sad to say, it does. They had become so individualistic in their thinking about Christianity and the purity of the church that incest was being practiced without shame. Folks could sit in the church, shout hallelujah, sing the songs of Zion, utter a few amens, and live in immorality. That happens all the time. They have thrown away church discipline, and Paul is calling upon them to exercise it. Why? Because it is a distinct mark of a healthy church. Furthermore, they were taking one another to court. This is a church, y'all. They were taking one another to court. Paul has to say to them, is there not a wise man among you who can make a righteous judgment? See, the church of Corinth was on the brink of destruction. This is how it happens. Folks have issues. You ready? And they don't work them out. That's how it happens. We don't work out issues. We want the leadership to do everything. Fix everything. We don't have what my wife would call, put on your big boy clothes and work things out. We need some just old, plain, act like Christians, Christianity. That's what we need. 
Some of the members, I already alluded to this, were involved in immorality. I'm talking about prostitution. A church. Being centered in a unique geographical position or geographic position. Trade was nonstop at Corinth, which caused the city to prosper. A constant flow of visitors, and with that constant flow of visitors came immorality. It was not known as a city of purity or virtue. Prostitution was big business. Paul wants to bring to the Corinthians' mind that Christ's redemptive work purchased the believer's body as well as the soul. And he commands them to bring those two aspects, if I may say, use them for the glory of God since they were purchased for a great price. Some were withholding marital responsibility from their spouses. Some who were converted appeared to be thinking of putting away their unbelieving spouses. Others thought remaining single rather than marrying was better for serving the Lord. There was a whole lot of issues going on in this church. Some of us wouldn't even call it a church, but Paul did. Some were eating food offered to idols, which was causing young believers to stumble. Paul corrects his thinking by giving himself as an example of self-denial in chapter 9. He goes on to give strong examples of the Lord's jealousy against idolatry, immorality, and said these are warnings to us. He commands them to do all things with the glory of God in view. We should do the same. They had lost sight of gender gender roles. (laughs) Some people say the Bible is outdated. We've lost sight of gender roles as well. The distinctness within the church. They were abusing the Lord's Supper, bringing division and drunkenness, which caused a health crisis and a life crisis. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Paul said in chapter 11, some of you are sick, health crisis, and some of you have died, life crisis. He said, be a follower of me as I am of Jesus Christ. They were also bragging about their spiritual gifts. Which one is more important? I have this gift. I have this gift. Paul tells him that the spirit is sovereign in his gifting. He distributes his gifts as he pleases and that these gifts are for the building up of the body, not for competition in the body. Each member is equally important and is needed for the mobility and strength of the body. So Paul is driving home, driving home at the end of the day. What is most important, not the spiritual gifts per se, but self-giving love. That's what's most important. To be exercised 
in this body. It's for the health, growth, and edification of the church. So after saying all of these things, Paul addresses something that we would think is unbecoming of a church. The denial of the resurrection. That's chapter 15. That brings us there. A denial of the resurrection? Can you imagine that for a moment? Imagine Brother Jeff and I got up here and said, there is no resurrection. What would you think? <laughs> this need to be your last day preaching. <laughs> a denial of the resurrection. You have no gospel without the resurrection. There's no good news without the resurrection. Without a resurrection, as Paul argues, that would imply Jesus did not die. At least, it also would imply he did not rise. Paul is saying now in so many words, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. What is he saying? It's time to go to school again. It's time to go back to school. P parents experience the same thing, don't, don't we? We tell our children things over and over again. We teach them things over and over again, over and over again. And then all of a sudden they say things and you say, What? I, I thought you had a hold of this. I, I thought you understood. I've taught it over and over and over and over again. It's time to go back to school. Parents are sometimes shocked. I know, he, I know she knows it or he knows it. Paul said, wait a minute. Back in the training school. Not only with parents, we do this over and over again with our own children. You know why? Can I tell you? May I tell you? We're not the only ones fighting for our children's mind. You do realize that, don't you? We're not the only ones fighting for the mind. There are unseen forces that will not give up. They are relentless said it before and I'll say it again. Satan and his hosts are doing everything, listen, everything in their strength to retain what they have and to regain what they've lost. That's why the battle is so intense. They will not give up. So Paul greets the Corinthians in chapter 15 here as brethren. Moreover, Brethren, that dear term. They are united by the bond of affection in Jesus Christ. Brethren. It is by that gracious work of the Holy Spirit they've been brought into the same family. He said, moreover, brethren, I have to go back again. I have to go back again. I declare unto you, what? The gospel. You know why? Because every church problem you have to address again with the gospel. 
That's why. You come back to the same thing over and over again. Why? Because the heart of church problems is sin. Maybe I didn't say that right. The heart of the problem, some way or another, is sin. That's the heart of the problem. Take the I out of there, put an O in there, and then we should focus on the sun, right? It's sin somewhere, 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 or another. Paul said, I have affection for you. I call you brethren. He's making known something unto them. He is saying, I want you to listen up again. Listen up again. I am bringing again to your mind the gospel. Again to your mind. <clears throat> because that message has not changed. And it never will. I declare unto you. I proclaim unto you. Didn't they hear it before? Yes, Acts chapter 18. I declare unto you again the message of the gospel. So I want to talk to you this evening about the message that Paul delivered. The message that Paul delivered. It's the same message that did not change because the gospel is not simply the beginning of the Christian life. The gospel is all of life. First, Paul tells us the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. Straight there in verse 1. <clears throat> he said, moreover, brethren, I declare, I proclaim unto you the gospel. Please notice. He said, I proclaim. I want you to notice something. The gospel is not a message to keep to ourselves. You see right there in the text. I proclaim. I am telling you something. I am not keeping it to myself. It is a message to pass on. The gospel is not a private message. It's a public message. It's not a quiet message or a secret message. It is a message that should and needs to go everywhere. Let me say this. I want you to listen carefully. You might hear something I'm not saying. The gospel, the gospel, listen, the gospel does not come to sinners as elect sinners. Are you listening? The gospel comes to sinners as sinners. Please note, the focus is not upon, with Paul, the process of communication, but the content of the communication. It's ready in the text. I say that because some of us think if we just say it just right, <laughs> if we say the right words, if we put it in the right way, if we just say it in the right tone, that will do it. 
No, the right words at the right time in the right place to the right people, they will be saved. You and I don't make the gospel message effective. It's effective because it's God's message. But we don't make it effective. We are simply instruments of delivery that God has chosen to use. That's it. Paul said, you know, one plant, one water, but the increase doesn't come from me or anyone else. It comes from God. He said, I proclaim this message. It's not for me just to keep to myself. Shame on us. Shame on us. Shame on us. If we want to keep this to ourselves. Shame on us if we want to just go to heaven by ourselves. Shame on us. And we say we got good news, but we don't tell anyone. Shame on us. So what is the message? Not only is it not a message to keep to ourselves, and it's not private, it's not secret. It's a public message. But what is it? I mean, what is it? He said, I declare unto you the gospel, but what is it? The word gospel, keep it simple. Simply means good news. That's, that's joyful tidings. News, it's really news of victory. It is a message of good news, but good news about whom? We always have to ask that question. Oh, good news about what? You say, mean good news, but good news about what? And good news about whom? This whole thing wrapped up in the good news is the idea of a king returning from victory over his enemies. That's the idea. Good news. This message really has to do with God. That's what it has to do with. It has to do with God. It's a message from God about God. That's what Paul tells us. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's been called to be an apostle, and he's been separated unto the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's his message. It's his message. But still we have to ask the question, what in the world is it? We know it's good news. It's about the victory of a king, in a sense. But still... It has to be more to it than that, right? Well, it's a gospel. What is the gospel? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote gospels. That's not the gospel per se. I think Paul spells it out a, a little bit for us because it's a message about God from God. But what about God? Bear with me a little bit. Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul waited for Silas and Timothy... At Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city given to idolatry. <laughs> I'm preaching to me, you just get to hear it. Does that happen to us? When we see idolatry, sure, we don't go and see statues per se, people bowing down to those things. But when we see wretchedness, are we stirred in any way? Paul saw the city given to idolatry. And it burdened him. 
He didn't say, you know what, man, y'all live the way y'all want to live. Man, I got Jesus, I'm going to heaven. That's not what he did. And I'm glad he did. His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily. You see, Paul, I'm going everywhere with this message. That's what he's doing. Then certain of the philosophers, of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. Paul wasn't afraid. He didn't care if they had a college degree. He didn't care how clever and how smart they were. He didn't say, well, you know what? That's a pretty big guy. I don't know if I should talk to him. That's not what he did. Paul talked to whomever because he had something to say. They encountered him. Notice, not simply he encountered them. They encountered him, and some said, what would this babbler say? This old seed picker, he got no information. He's just dropping here and dropping here. What does he have to say? And others, some, he seemed to be a set forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus. Do you hear that? He preached unto them, yes, these philosophers, yes, these university grads, yes, these ones who have PhDs. I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. And the resurrection. And they took him <laughs> after hearing him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speaketh is? Tell us of this new doctrine. He won him an audience. I love it. For thou bringest strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. That's an open door. That's an open door. You invited to talk to the city council? They said, what do these things mean? Oh, wow, you, know, you need to unloose your tongue. Lord, unloose it if I can't. Give me the words, and I'm about to speak about Jesus right now. Thou bringest strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Sound like the barbershop. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens. Listen, listen how uh, respectful Paul is. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Some translated religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription or this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Let me tell you about him. <laughs> he looked around and saw all of these statues, and then he saw unknown. Aha! That's my opportunity right here. I tell him about him. Then he said, this unknown God who you ignorantly, ignorantly worship. Then he said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things and hath made of one blood all nations of men 
for to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should, listen, seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poet said, I'm just going to use you. Pastor, I'm going to use you. Your own poets have said the same thing. For we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the God here is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by arts and man's devices. In the times of this ignorant, God winked that, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised them from the dead. Did you hear that? First, Paul addressed God as the faithful and holy creator. That's what he did with them. He gave them a message about God. First of all, God is a faithful and holy creator. He made all things. Then he proclaimed at the same time, without mentioning these words, he proclaimed that God was omnipotent. He has all power. If he made all things, he has to have all power. He made the world and all things therein. And then he presses them before. He's a faithful lawgiver. He commanded. Paul is setting all of these things about God right there before them. We don't find him saying anything until he's done. Or maybe they cut him off. Who knows? Since God is the creator, it is his prerogative to give commands to his creatures and to expect them to carry them out. It was a wake-up call. Paul said, Paul said, let me tell you about me. No, that's not what Paul did. That would not have helped them at all. Paul said, let me tell you about God. He made all things, and by telling them that God made all things, he was chopping down all the idols. He does this. He commands us, Genesis chapter 2, he commands Adam. He also declared how God is a faithful and holy provider. It's all in that passage. He gave us things. He's doing it. It's an act of God's goodness toward his creation. Right there in verse 25. He also declared God to be holy and a faithful judge. He did all of these things. Turn this off for a minute. Listen, if God is the holy and faithful judge, right? He determines the judgments. <laughs> we don't determine how we're going to be judged. The judge, according to his law, determines how man should be judged. He will not show favoritism in judgment. He is not going to cut corners in judgment. He's a faithful judge. He will judge like the psalmist. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity, fairness. The message, the message Paul pressed before us is that it's about God and his demand upon man. He also tells us in that same <clears throat> discourse that this is a message also about God's controversy with man. It's right there in Acts 17. 
They put down these idols. You can't think that the God of heaven and earth ought to be worshipped with man's hand as though he needed anything, silver and gold. God has a controversy with man. Why? Because man has a what? Sin problem. That's our problem. We have one problem. If I miss it, it's a sin problem. That's our problem. Man was created so that he would mirror the character of Almighty God on earth. We haven't done a good job. He was to be under God's authority, God's rule, according to God's direction. So anytime we refuse to walk with God, take the word of God seriously, we find ourselves in trouble. See, we, 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 we do not take the goodness of God seriously. We, won't take the, we will not take the holiness of God seriously. We will not take the love of God seriously. We don't even take the threats of God seriously. We think it's a joke. God's holy. Okay, what? You may die tomorrow. Okay, what? We're so messed up. We don't even realize it. God can threaten judgment. We don't even take it seriously. This is this message about God and who he is and all of his person and his holiness and his goodness and his demand upon mankind. Paul said, I have a message for you, Corinthians. Remember God? Remember God? Kind of bring you back. God's controversy with man is because of his sins, his rebellion. But not only that, message also, and I come back to this later. Oh, man, what happened? It's a message also about Jesus Christ. It is the king who would come and bring salvation. Why he have to tell professing Christians about the gospel? We don't need the gospel anymore, do we? We're promoted, remember? Promoted from what? You need the message over and over and over and over again. If we didn't need it, guess what? The Lord wouldn't have given us what? The Lord's Supper. It reminds us. We need it over and over again. We don't want to lose sight of the gospel. We don't want to, quote, outgrow the gospel. We need it. <clears throat> it's this message about the king. The king comes in all of his beauty. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoke and flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. We're talking about perfection, y'all. He's come. He said, Paul said, I got a message. He had no New Testament. He had to preach it from something. Old Testament. Because it's the gospel in it. He drew from the Old Testament. Paul had big Bible Christianity. He used it all. He looked everywhere. Page after page, I'll show you Jesus. That's what he did. Paul would make the regenerate heart leap for joy. That's what he did. 
He showed them how Jesus, he showed them how Jesus again was the serpent smasher, Genesis chapter 3, 15. The seed of Abraham. We can even say the ark of Noah, right? If we want to go that far and use types and shadows. A prophet like Moses, a real Joshua. Showed him over and over again, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that classic passage in Isaiah 53, with the one being bruised by the great God of heaven and earth, having iniquity laid upon him so that those for whom he died will be righteous. Not only made righteous, but declared righteous. It's God's promise and fulfillment. Oh, Paul was drawing from them Old Testament passages. I'm going to preach to you again, Jesus. He really came. It's God's promise and fulfillment. He made a promise and he kept it. And he always keeps his promises. Always. He may not fulfill things on your timetable or mine, but it will be fulfilled nonetheless. He keeps his promises. Matthew starts off his gospel beautifully, doesn't he? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. I love it. You know why? Because that one verse connects it all together. Here's the promised seed and the promised king. But not only is it a message to be proclaimed, number two, it is a message to be received. Receive. It's right there in verse 1. I don't know how far we get, but we get what we can. It's so a moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach or proclaim unto you, which also ye have received. The word receive carries the sense of acceptance. You have accepted the truths of the message concerning Jesus Christ and taking it as your own. That's what Paul is saying. You have received. It's yours. You've owned it. It's not just mommy's and daddy's message. It's not just my spouse's message. It's not simply the preacher's message. You've taken it to yourself. It's mine. It's not simply hearing the message and nothing more. It's a receiving. It's a receiving. It's a laying hold of it. This is not a message to be ignored or laid aside. Okay? It's not one to push to the side. It's not one to ignore. It's a message to be received immediately without hesitation, without procrastination, and without reservation. Did you hear what I just said? It's a message to be received. The day is going to come when you and I will hear our last sermon. Last sermon. It's a message to be received. Paul said, you have received what I preach. Not only have you received it, listen to number three. It's a message to stand strong in. It's right there in verse one. Wherein you stand strong in this message, they are to stand strong, firm with commitment. That's the sense of the words. Commitment. 
In other words, they are not to deviate from the truth. That's what happened. He's bringing them back. He said, you have to stand firm, flat-footed, so to speak. Resolve. Don't deviate from the truth. I'm bringing you back to school. Back to school. They are to, and we as well, they are to build their lives upon this message. Because it's about the greatest person they ever left. Everything has to be about this message. We have no other message for the world. Did you know that? There's no other message to we, that we have for the world. There's one good news, and that's it, in Jesus Christ. We have nothing else, nothing else to offer. God is doing that great work of saving sinners and making them lights in the world. Did you know that Christians are the only light in the world? You, you didn't know that, did you? Jesus said, ye are the light, not another light or not a light. You are the light of the earth. The light. Can I just put it in southern lingo? We's it, y'all. We're it. Don't deviate from the message. Stand firm. But then he has something else. Verse 2. Not only is it to be proclaimed, received, and stood strong in, but another one. So by it also, you are saved. <laughs> they see y'all saved. Why would Paul say something like this? Because there's no other saving message. That's why. There's no other saving message. God has given one message for the saving of any sinner. One message. And that message concerns Jesus Christ, the greatest of all God's holy and beloved Son. It is believing this message that sinners are rescued and brought to the ground of safety. Just this message. The truths of the gospel are to be retained. It's right there. If ye keep. You have to be retained. You're saved by this message. You're delivered. You're rescued by this message. But don't lose it. It ought to be retained. Kept. We ought to maintain these truths and hold fast to them as for dear life. Well, this is an activity, right, on our part. They ought to hold fast. Listen to what Paul said. They ought to hold fast unless their believing was simply a shell. It's right there in the passage. He said, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Lest it all was just a sham. I preached it, but I can't make you believe it. <laughs> I can deliver it to you, but you have to own it. You have to receive it. You need to stand in it. It's the only message by which you may be saved, and you have to keep these truths unless it's all a sham. If some other notion or idea have invaded their minds, they will not hold fast to the gospel. Did you hear me? That's why, y'all, 
You don't mind me saying that, do you? That's why it's so important to teach sound, healthy doctrine. Vitally important. The moment Brother Jeff or myself or anyone who stands at the sacred desk teaches something else, we need to sit down. There's nothing else to feed the people of God. They need truth as it is in Jesus Christ. The moment there's a deviation, the moment something else gets in the mind, the moment we start tampering with truth, we're on dangerous road. We can't afford to tamper with false doctrine. We can't afford to do it. One of the ways to deal with false doctrine and to recognize false doctrine is to saturate your mind in this book. <laughs> we will not be able to see the world for what it is without this book. You cannot. You come up with some strange notions apart from this book. Well, the gospel is rooted in the scriptures. It's right there in verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, Paul said, here it is. Here's what I have foremost. First of all, I delivered unto you what I received. I'm not telling you anything different. I'm telling you what I received. I want you to receive what I received. I'm passing on the same truths to you. It's what I received. What is it, Paul? Christ died according to the Scriptures. <laughs> Do you see what Paul's mind is rooted in? It's rooted in the book. He says, according to the Scripture, Paul holds the Scriptures to be authoritative and divine. He holds it to be God's Word. This is not fiction to Paul. It shouldn't be to us either. It's real. He said, Christ died according to the Scriptures. It was prophesied. And he said, I'm banking everything on that. It's according to the Scriptures that Jesus himself would be the one who would live for us. Jesus, we needed a perfect obedience. He has to live for us. I just read the scripture to you, but the bruise read, I already talked about that perfection in his life. It is the perfection of his life that brings forth the obedience that God requires. That God requires the perfect life. Where are we going to get that perfection from? From the life of Jesus. Who are we going to get that righteousness from? The life of Jesus. What God requires? Perfection. 100% of us. Keeping 100% of his law. 100% of the time. Who is going to do that? Us? No. Jesus. We need Jesus in every single way. That perfect obedience. Listen. That perfect obedience is available for sinners and two sinners. It's available. God isn't hiding it. It's available. It's received by faith. It's available. It's available to all who believe. You believe that? Do you believe that? That God has a righteousness that he is willing to give that we didn't work for? And it's the righteousness that he required. Put that together for a moment. God has a righteousness available 
that we did not work for, but it's the same righteousness he requires. And he's willing to give that or impute that or credit that to your account, even though you didn't work for it. Who could come up with a better deal than that? It's yours by faith in Jesus Christ. And you need it. Believe me, on judgment day, you would want it. <laughs> you will want it. Do you believe that? Seek ye the Lord. I, I, I don't know if I can prove it to you, but I'll tell you what the word of God says. It says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Listen, call ye upon him. This is God talking. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return. Sound like repentance to me. Let him return unto the Lord and he will, listen, have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, abundantly. God is ready to forgive us sins. <sighs> it's rooted in the scriptures. And that's Paul's driving point. Well, it's rooted in the scriptures that Jesus would live for us. It's rooted in the scriptures that Jesus also would die for us. He tells us that in verse 3. He traces the gospel, as I said, Genesis 3.15. He can even use Psalm 22 to hear of the cry of the Savior. Thank you so much. Cry of the Savior. My God, my God. Why have thou forsaken me? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You see how Paul could just go to the word of God and show over and over again. Let me show you Jesus from the scriptures. He died according to the scriptures. He was supposed to do that. It wasn't an accident. It didn't happen by chance. He was supposed to do that. He was literally, he literally born to die. He was born to die. <clears throat> He said, I gave my back to the smiters. I gave my back to the smiters. Talk about the death of Christ, y'all. I gave my back to the smiters. My cheek to them to pluck off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Why would he do all of that? I hid not my face. I didn't say, no, don't do that. I gave him a back. I let them rip open my back. And I gave him a face. Him spit in my face. Why would he do that? To rescue sinners. If we don't see the love of God, I don't know what else to tell you. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and installed, be very high. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the son of man. See it? Beaten? Could you recognize it? Maybe these things don't, maybe these things just do not move us anymore. Maybe we have developed some form of callousness. Maybe that's it. He's oppressed. He's afflicted. All of these places that Paul could take him. He's a lamb to the slaughter. Sheep before his chair is dumb. So he opens not his mouth. He's cut off as the Messiah himself. Daniel chapter 9. 
You can take them all over the Old Testament and say, I want to show you that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He can even say, I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. He can take them all over the place. There's a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. He says, see, that's Jesus. The gospel is rooted in the scriptures. His death is rooted in the scriptures, not only so, but Paul tells us something else in verse 4. And he was buried. He was buried. Not only that he, he died, but he really died. He was buried. <laughs> he, he was buried. Oh, but he rose again. Jesus is alive Right now. Do you believe that? Right, right, right now, Jesus is alive. Right now. Death cannot hold him down. The grave could not keep him in. He's alive now. A good pastor brother of mine would say, he said the tomb was turned into a dressing room. <laughs> he said he took off his grave clothes and put on his resurrection outfit. <laughs> I like it. Jesus really rose from the dead, and it was prophesied that he would do so. The old folks used to say, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified, freed me forever. One day he's coming back. Glorious day. He prophesied that Jesus would rise. The book of Psalms, put it like this. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rise in hope, for thou would not leave my soul in hell. Neither would thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou would show me the path of life. It was uttered by David, but he was talking about Jesus. It was prophesied that he would rise. He rose again according to the scriptures. We have to have the resurrection. Isaiah put it like this. It's easy to miss. Some may say I'm reading into it, but I'm going to read into it. Isaiah puts it like this. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. Listen to the language. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Isaiah 26, 19. Sound like resurrection to me. What does it sound like to you? They'll live again. And they will. Another scripture, because the clock show, is showing me no mercy. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. You said, what did that have to do with the resurrection? Everything. Stick with me. If, listen, if Jesus died, right? And if he's going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, something has to happen. And the, 
He has to rise from the dead in order for that to happen. That's resurrection language built into the text. He rose according to the scriptures. And Paul is bringing them back to school and saying, listen, I have to tell you it again. And I want you to stand on it. Because you may believe in vain. And that's what you've proven right now. And he goes on and argues over and over and over again for the resurrection. How say some of you, there is no resurrection. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We have nothing to live for if there's no resurrection. And then he closes out the chapter by saying, Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? That's resurrection language. My friends, Paul declared a message, this message of the gospel. It is a message to be declared. It's a message to be received. And it's a message to stand firm in. And it's the only message by which we may be safe. The only message. May God strengthen us to have the resolve like Paul. So I don't care what anybody says. I'm not going to preach any other message. Have one message to preach. And I'll preach it to the trees if human beings won't hear. In the case of my children, they say, Daddy, just preach it to the mirror. Or the garage wall or whatever it is. They find me. But that's what we need to do, my brothers and sisters. Take this gospel and take this gospel message and let's drive it everywhere. We're running out of time. We're running out of time. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I tell you one thing, we're running out of time. We are going to die one day. Let's make use of our time. Let's take this gospel message everywhere. Everywhere. We do the carrying, and God will do the saving. We do the proclaiming, and God will do the saving. We do the declaring, and God will do the saving. But you have to have a message to declare. And Paul gave it to us. And a little seed for. May we, by the grace of God, glory in Christ Jesus, knowing that this is a message to be received, it's a message about God, it's a message concerning our wretchedness and our sins, it's a message about Jesus Christ, and we repent and lay hold of that Savior. I think Packer's four points are good in his evangelism and sovereignty of God. Worth is waiting to go. So let's rejoice in this great Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us, which is better than life, and for our lips do praise you. Lord, please help us. Please strengthen us to take this message everywhere. The world needs it. Father, may we not, may we, may we not lift up our voices to complain about the world and we're not willing to help by take this message, taking this message. Lord, help us, we pray. Forgive us. Forgive us when we've become so comfortable. Lord, even lazy. God, help us. Help us, oh, Father, to be like your son, to love him supremely, and to talk about him freely and boldly. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.
Now in the God of peace, I brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God be with you till we meet again.